Amen. I'll invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning as we continue marching through our series on Isaiah 40 to 55. We're coming up close to the end. We're on chapter 52 this morning. Isaiah chapter 52. I'm going to read... I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. And I ask if you'll please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. And this is the word of God, the holy word of God for us, his people. God's word says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your holy word, and now we ask you would bless as well the preaching of that word. As I open my mouth to speak, may may the words be the words of God. May there be a faithful unpacking of what your word says. May I fade away, and may we see you today stand forth from your word and speak to us a word from heaven that we need. And help us to believe all you call us to believe and do all you call us to do. Write this word upon our hearts and conform us a little more this morning into the image of Jesus, we pray for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Isaiah 52 is a continuation of the chapter that we looked at last week in chapter 51. If you'll recall, back in chapter 51, the people say to God in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. And as we saw, what Israel was doing was telling God to stop sleeping on the job and get busy blessing us, get busy delivering us. And God had to respond with a bit of a correction, shall we say, a bit of a rebuke. But he ended that chapter by promising deliverance and blessing. Well, here the very first words of chapter 52, God says those exact same words back to Israel. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion, in verse 1. Zion told God to wake up as a challenge to his word, and then God 
told them to wake up and remember who he is and who they are. He's the holy God. He's creator of heaven and earth. He's the maker of his people. And he will certainly keep his promises. But Zion, you guys are in exile because of your sin. But soon I will deliver you. Here in chapter 52, this dialogue continues and God continues speaking to his people. And he tells them to awake. Awake. Wake up, Israel. Except he's not telling them to wake up as a rebuke. He's telling them in this chapter, wake up. The day of your salvation has come. The day has arrived when I will keep my promises and I will fulfill my word. Today's a day when I will proclaim to you the gospel. I'm going to tell you the good news, Israel. The good news that the day of salvation is here. This is what we're going to see in chapter 52. Before we dive in, uh, I want to mention an assignment that my old... One of my Old Testament professors in seminary gave us. Uh, Dr. McDowell is her name. And Dr. McDowell uh, told us, at the, end of the, at the end of the course, part of your exam is going to be this assignment. You have to, now we had to write this out, but basically she said, you have to preach the gospel... Describe the gospel, but you can only use the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the tabernacle. (laughs) Now that's a hard assignment. Now she told us that up front so that as we go through the class, the whole point was to show us that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. The Old Testament points to Jesus. And think about it, guys. The Apostle Paul, the first disciples, they couldn't say, turn to Romans. Paul hadn't written Romans yet. They couldn't say, well, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says thus and such. They didn't have a New Testament yet until they wrote it. (laughs) So how did they preach the Gospel on the day of Pentecost? Or the next year? Or ten years later, before any New Testament book has been written down, how did they preach the gospel? Well, they had a Bible. It's the Old Testament. And they preached the gospel of Jesus from the Old Testament. And that means you can do that too. Sometimes we act like the Bible comes with a do not try this at home warning. (laughs) But actually, the point of the Bible is to get us to act like the good characters in the Bible. (laughs) To get us to be like them. To change us into the obedient servants of God we read there. And it's to teach us that we can preach Jesus from the whole Bible. And so part of what we're going to do is see how a chapter like Isaiah 52 preaches the gospel of Jesus. Now Isaiah has been called in church history the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. And it's because of chapters like this. Isaiah proclaims the good news of the Messiah more powerfully and more clearly than any other Old Testament book. And today we're going to learn together how to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. So the chapter is broken up into three sections. There's three natural divisions that occur in the chapter. 
And we're going to make three points, one from each section like we normally do. And here's what we're going to do in each section. This is not a long chapter, so this will be simple. We're going, to, we're going to ask three questions about each of these sections. The questions are these. What did this mean for Israel back in Isaiah's day? What is God telling Israel in this chapter? Second, how is this fulfilled by the Messiah Jesus in his day? And then third, how does this apply to the church and to us today? So there's always that, there's, there's these three levels of meaning we have to dig into. Original meaning for Israel back when Isaiah first wrote this down and sent it out and people read it. How did Jesus end up fulfilling this? And then what does this say to us today? So that's where we're going to go. We're just going to walk through quickly those three questions and we're going to do it in all three sections. So section one, verses one through six. Let's read together. God says, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Let's just stop there with the first two verses. What's going on in these first two verses? Question one, what did this mean for Israel back in Isaiah's day? He is directly talking to Israel about their deliverance, their rescue, their salvation from exile in Babylon. The rescue and deliverance and freedom of the people from their bondage to the Babylonians. God is going to redeem his people and he is going to make a great name for himself among the nations by rescuing his people in fulfillment of his word. This is what it directly means for Israel. Let's break it down. Look at the specifics. He says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. He's talking to people in exile whose capital city, Jerusalem, and whose temple in Jerusalem have been obliterated, destroyed, wiped out by the conquering Babylonians. And he's telling them, put on your strength. You who sit in weakness, you who are destitute, you who are in the dust and the ashes, it's time to rise up. It is time for a rebirth of Jerusalem. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. We could actually translate that as put on your royal robes. You are going from the pit to the palace. Just like Joseph. Joseph is in a pit. He's in prison. He's in bondage in Egypt. He's a slave. He's a servant. He's of nobody. He's forgotten. And then the time comes when Pharaoh exalts him to his right hand. Joseph sits on the right hand of Pharaoh. That should sound eerily like the Apostles' Creed. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who is in a pit, a grave, a tomb, and is raised to the right hand of God. Joseph prefigures this. Israel is about to be raised up. Put on your royal garments, O Jerusalem. 
And then he says, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. That means these uncircumcised Gentiles, these pagans, these unclean, impure, abominable pagans like Babylonians, they're no longer coming against you. Your enemies will be put down. No more will they trample upon you. No more are you going to get conquered. No more, Israel. You're coming back to your land, back to your city, rebuilding the temple, and I'm going to exalt you. Verse 2, shake yourself from the dust and arise. And as soon as he says arise, he says sit down. <laughs> I love that. What he means is get out of the ashes, get out of the dust where you've been crushed and trampled by the Babylonians. Get up out of the dust and sit down. Where? Back on the throne. Israel's going to be re restored as a people and a kingdom in their own land. Be seated, O Jerusalem, and loose the bonds from your neck. No longer a slave. You will no longer be a slave. That's what this meant for Israel in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 to 6. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Oh, I love, oh. It's, it's all I can do to not dance right now. I just, you, scripture's amazing. And it should excite us. It should absolutely excite us. I'm getting excited because I, I know where I'm going. So, you'll get there. You'll start dancing in a minute. You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. This is the language of someone who is buying and selling slaves. You were shipped off, sold into bondage, given away, sold for nothing. Couldn't get anybody to pay a price for you. Nobody would even offer anything. So I ended up just giving you away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you back. I'm going to bring you back, Israel. But I'm not going to buy you back. No money will be involved. My people went down into Egypt, and Egypt oppressed them and enslaved them. And then he skips ahead hundreds and hundreds of years to Assyria, who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them into exile. He says, You have been oppressed by Egypt. You've been in bondage to Assyria. And now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers are wailing. They were crying out for deliverance. Crying out for deliverance. And then God says this, And because they were in bondage, my name has been continually despised. Not by Israel, but by the nations. Look at your God. He's pathetic. 
He couldn't keep our gods from beating him. If he could have, you wouldn't be in bondage. We would have lost the war. We wouldn't have conquered you. And then we, we would have went home empty-handed. But look, you're in exile. So our God's stronger than yours. He stinks and ours is awesome. Your God serves our God and that's why you serve us. Because that's how it worked in the ancient world. I've mentioned this a few times before, but... What happens on earth is paralleled by what happens in heaven. And so when armies and kings clash on the ground, angels and gods and armies are clashing in heaven. That's how the ancient mind imagined it. And if my God beats your God, then my army beats your army. And then your God has to serve my God. And then your people have to serve my people. That's why I get to enslave you. The gods will it. It's the will of the gods. And you're in slavery to us. So guess whose God is better? And they despised the name of God. Mocked it. Ridiculed it. Where's your God now? Pathetic little Israelites. And you know what God says? All right. Okay. Enough's enough. Time's up, guys. Therefore, my people shall know my name. I am going to make a magnificent, glorious, awesome, powerful name for myself. And how am I going to do it? By busting you out of there. Their gods can't hold you. Their chains can't keep you. You are coming out. You are my people. And in that day they shall know it is I who speak. Here I am. God's going to show up. This is a promise to Israel to be busted out of exile. How is this fulfilled by Jesus? How is this fulfilled by Jesus? In the first century, Jesus comes and fulfills scriptures like this by saying, Here I am. Here I am. Jesus comes to redeem his people, not from their bondage to slavery to Babylonians or to Pharaoh or to the Assyrians, a political power. Jesus comes to redeem his people from their ultimate bondage, bondage to sin and bondage to death and the grave and to hell. And he awakens us from our spiritual death and he frees us from captivity to the devil who held us bound to do his bidding. And just like God exalted Israel and put them back into a kingdom in their own land, so he raises us up to reign with him. And this part about you were sold for nothing and I'm going to buy you back without money... Think of that in terms of the gospel. How do you preach the gospel from a passage like this? How do, you make, how do you turn this into a picture of Jesus the way the apostles did? You were sold for nothing. What did you have to do to be worthy of hell? You just had to exist. <laughs> you just had to be born. You, we're all condemned in Adam, from the womb. Remember King David? In sin, my mother conceived me. We are, we sin because we're already sinners. We're already fallen. We're already condemned in Adam. You're an heir of damnation from day one. You don't have to lift a finger to earn it. It's already yours in Adam. And in the same way, you don't lift a finger to get heaven it's already yours because of Jesus. Hell is yours because of Adam. And heaven's yours because of Christ. The only question is, are you in Adam 
or are you in Christ? It's an inheritance. We were damned before the first bad deed we did, and we are justified and heirs of glory before the first good work you do. One because of Adam, the other because of Christ. And then your life of sin or of obedience just testifies to everybody else whether you're in Adam or whether you're in Christ. You imitate whichever father you belong to. If you're a child of Adam, you do like Adam and you sin and rebel. If you're a child of God, you do the will of the Father. We were damned for nothing, but were purchased back by Jesus, by His blood, before we do anything. Matthew one twenty one says that in the prophecy to Joseph about the birth of Jesus, he says, you will name Him Jesus because He's going to save His people from their sins in fulfillment of all those prophecies. He's going to free us from our bondage just like Israel was freed from theirs. Jesus says in John 8 to the Jewish leaders there, and they say, look, we have never been in bondage to anybody. We're not slaves of anybody. And you would expect Jesus to say, how about those Romans? Right? You kind of are. But they didn't, they didn't think they were in bondage to anything, not even Rome. And Jesus says, forget Rome. Uh, whoever sins is a slave of sin. But the Son came to set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You're free indeed. Jesus came to free us from our bondage and to raise us up to reign with Him. That's how Jesus fulfills these verses. Now the, the third question of this first section is, how does this apply to the church today? And the answer is, the church is the new Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that's above. And this is, this is in the last book of the Bible. This is in the book of Revelation. You can go there with me if you'd like. I'm going to read a few verses from Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We often think about the new Jerusalem, like the city with the streets of gold and the gates of pearl and all that, that that's heaven. And sure, it might be a nice metaphor for heaven. But in context, John's describing a vision of the church. Revelation 21, look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, who's the bride of Christ? Heaven? No, that's the church, it's us. That's the church. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He's going to show John the church. And then verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me, and it doesn't say the church. It doesn't say the bride. It doesn't say the wife of the Lamb. It says he showed me the holy city. Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And on and on he goes about this city. 
So he says, all right, John, come here. Come up to the mountain and I'm going to show you the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ. And what he sees is the heavenly city, Jerusalem. So that tells you what's being described here is the church. And in verse 22 of Revelation 21, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But Verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isaiah 52 says that the uncircumcised and the unclean will not come into you anymore. This is fulfilled in the church where the people of God, the true believers, the actual bride of Christ, real born-again Christians will belong to the church and we will be the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this new heavenly Jerusalem. The place where God's glory dwells, not in a temple because we're the temple. We don't need a building with an outer court, an inner court, a holy of holies. And we go through the, we don't need any of that anymore because we get Jesus directly. That's why I love that hymn we sang today. Come to your temple and never, never more leave it again. Because that's us face to face. The veil in the temple got ripped apart when Jesus said it's finished. And now we get to see face to face what nobody got to see before. This new Jerusalem is the church. And the glory of the nations will stream into this church. As the great commission is fulfilled and the nations come to Christ, we will be exalted as the church. The church will end up ruling. You believe that? The church is going to rule the nations with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. The church. Us. <laughs> and we, I, I think we treat that like a dead metaphor or something. Like it's just a... Like, oh yeah, it's, a nice, it's poetry or something. No. No, in the new heavens and new earth, in resurrected bodies down here on, on like the ground, not floating away with harps and cream cheese. <laughs> Remember those old cream cheese commercials where they're playing the harp? No? Okay. Never mind. They're floating on a cloud. It's Philadelphia cream cheese. We're, Philadelphia, come on. It's not pie in the sky and float away. It's down here. When that cemetery empties out. And there's piles of dirt cast aside because we're coming out, folks. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And the church will rule and reign with Christ forever. And we get to start that now by being this people of God. This is why I want to start dancing. Join me, won't you? So that's number one. And we lingered long on that one because it's, it casts a vision for us of something glorious that's in our future. Something absolutely glorious in our future. That you are a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the new Jerusalem now. And Jesus is king now. 
and we serve one king now. We're not waiting for Jesus to come back and be king then. We serve a king who rules today. And who mocks the nations and laughs and holds them in derision. And one day will give us the victory. Now this second section, I already read it in our, uh, when we began the sermon. So I'm not going to read the whole passage through again. That's why we read it up front. But we come to the second section, verses 7 through 10. And we want to ask our same three questions. What does this mean for Israel? What, how is it fulfilled by Jesus? And what does it mean for us Today, what had happened in the exile is that God had abandoned the temple. The glory of God, the presence of God that's in the temple, it left. Ezekiel describes this vision of the glory of God leaving and writing Ichabod, Ichabod on the temple, which means the the presence has departed. (laughs) Ichabod, the presence has departed. And too many of our churches today could probably have Ichabod written across them. Because the glory of God left there a long time ago. And you go worship there and you don't feel the spirit and the word isn't preached and it's just, what are we doing here? And we don't want to fall into that trap. The The glory of God has departed. Pretty big building, brick buildings on finely manicured lawns and God has forsaken them long ago. Now that's this temple. He comes out of the temple, he leaves the land of Israel, he abandons them. Babylon comes in, all this is because of their sin, breaking the covenant. They get demolished, they get sent away. So what are they hoping for? They're hoping for a couple of things. Number one, we just want to get back to the land. Get us back to our homeland, out of Babylon. Number two, we want to rebuild our, our city, Jerusalem, the holy city. Number three, we want to rebuild our temple. And finally, number four, we want God to come back. We want the presence of God back in our midst to bless us and keep us and protect us and he'll be our God and we'll be his people and we'll be obedient and it'll, we'll get the blessing. So that's what they're hoping for. And this passage describes the absolute mind-boggling joy of when that day happens for Israel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who says to Zion, your God reigns. He's coming back to be king again. He's taking up his crown again. He's back on the throne. And it says in verse 8, the voice of your watchmen. So picture this. They've already returned to Israel. They've rebuilt the city walls. The temple's been rebuilt. They're just looking. The watchmen on the wall. When's God coming back? When's he coming? When's he coming? Oh God, come today. And then it says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice and they together they sing for joy because eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Yes, he's finally coming back. This prophecy meant for Israel that at the end, I will come back to you. I will be in your midst again. I will dwell among you for the, to bless and not to curse. I will redeem you. I will comfort you. In verse 10 says, the Lord has bared his holy arm. I love this. In the sight of all the nations. He rolled up his sleeve and he did a big divine flex in front of the whole world. And really showed what he's made of. This pumps me up. I don't know. 
I'm just a man, like he just said, my name is despised by all the nations. So, okay, Hulk Hogan. Y'all know who Hulk Hogan is, right? Okay. You didn't know about the cream cheese, so I don't know. That God shows himself mighty and valiant and strong for his people. He has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the... And he doesn't say arm, he says salvation. That's what the arm of the Lord is. Bringing his strong and mighty arm to save. Bearing his arm for his people. Bringing deliverance and salvation. This is going to cause mind-boggling joy for his people, Israel. That's what it meant for them. And all this stuff has a historical fulfillment for them. But it's looking ahead. If you think the return of the Jews to the Holy Land was it, that's not it. It points to something bigger. It points to Jesus. How does Jesus fulfill this? How did Jesus fulfill this? Guys, when Jesus went into the wilderness, when he got baptized by John, and he went into the wilderness... The Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he's tempted 40 days and 40 nights and he endures the temptations of the devil and he comes back in, comes back into Israel and he shows up, he says like God does in the verse, here I am, here I am. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you've seen Him, you've seen God on foot. God in the flesh. The coming of Jesus is the return of Yahweh to Zion. It is the coming of Jehovah God to dwell with His people again. It was Jesus... God in flesh who fulfilled the ultimate return. And you will see eye to eye. And they couldn't have imagined that meant I'm going to look into the eyes of a Galilean peasant Jew. And I'm going to see the face of God. And many in his day did not rejoice. Some thought he was the son of God and they bowed and they followed. And some thought, yeah, maybe, but I'm curious, but... Not committed. Others were sympathetic, but didn't care that much. Some didn't care at all. Some thought he sounds dangerous. Some thought, I don't like that guy. And then some thought, we got to kill this man. So you have this whole spectrum of responses to Jesus. And ultimately, the good news is, he's coming, but he will lay down his life for his people to save them from their sins. That was, the, that was section one. He has to go down into death and to save us from our ultimate bondage. And through the cross, he takes up the crown. Through the cross, he mounts the throne. So when the Romans and the Jewish leaders and the, and the pagans and the people who didn't follow him and believe in him, when they saw him crucified... They saw his failure and his demise and his defeat. But the eyes of faith said, I see the king taking the throne, ruling from the tree. 
And he goes down into death, and God brings him out of the grave, and he doesn't stop. He keeps going. He just ascends to the right hand of God Almighty. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. When God rolls up his sleeve and shows his arm to the world, it looks like Jesus. When he rolls up his sleeve and he shows his arm and he reaches out with his hands to save, he takes nails in those hands for his people. Jesus fulfills these words to accomplish our salvation. But did you catch the, the main message we're supposed to tell about this good news? It says in verse 7, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We preach a gospel about a king. This is how it applies to us today. What's this got to do with the church and Christians today other than just accomplishing your salvation? Christian, when you proclaim the gospel, now catch this, when you proclaim the gospel, when you share your faith, when you tell somebody about Jesus... The message you are to tell them is Jesus is king. God reigns. The message of the church is what Jesus calls in the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. To hear more about that, Wednesday night Bible study. But I'll give you something tonight, today. The gospel of the kingdom, when you share your faith, you're telling people about a king about another king, not Caesar, Jesus. Jesus is the suffering king who has saved his people by his death. Jesus is the risen king who has all power over death and the grave. Jesus is the reigning king who ascended into heaven and is seated at God's right hand. All authority belongs to him. His kingdom rules over all governments and all magistrates and all lesser authorities of this world. He alone has ultimate authority and he alone is worthy of ultimate allegiance. Jesus is the returning king who will come back one day to finish his kingdom mission that he started when he came the first time and he will judge the quick and the dead. That's not just an old little creed we say each week. It's church, what do you believe? Jesus is coming again. To judge the quick and the dead. He will reward the righteous with eternal life. He will punish the wicked with eternal death. Therefore, you must repent of your sins. Therefore, you, because Jesus is king, must bow your knee in submission to him, to his throne and his scepter alone. You must swear allegiance to him above all earthly powers. You must put all your faith, hope, trust, and reliance upon him. And Him alone as Savior and Lord. This is the good news that the church proclaims. In the Gospel of Luke, when, it's, when the angel tells Mary, Luke 2.10, I, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And it's the news that Jesus is King. Your God reigns. He's taking up His throne this is the good news of great joy that we get to share. We get to proclaim a royal decree about a king who sits above every earthly power. 
and who will inherit the nations and judge them with a rod of iron. A king is coming, we are to say. A king has come and accomplished salvation from sin, death, and hell. And a king is coming again to rid the earth of those who oppose his rule and to establish his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, fully and forever for those who love and serve him to the death. That's how you preach the gospel from the Old Testament. Is you get a hold of a power line like this and you just try to wrestle it and take it into battle. And when you get a hold of this thing, it will shock you, it will shock others, it will change lives. And it will absolutely be unstoppable. This is the electrifying message of a king, Jesus That's what we preach. And because he's king, we must repent and bow and trust and march for him. Last point, last two verses of the chapter, and we're done. Last two verses of Isaiah. Not not last two of the chapter, but the last two of our section. We're going to save the... The last verses of the chapter for next week. Verses 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your guard. Your rear guard. Quickly, what does this mean for Israel? It means Israel, just like they got delivered from Egypt in the original Exodus, there is going to be a second Exodus, a new Exodus, this time from Babylon. They're going to leave Babylon. They are to purify themselves and maintain their purity. They have to be holy if they want to go back to a holy land. Restore the true worship of God when you get there and enjoy the divine protection of Yahweh as you journey toward your homeland. How does Jesus fulfill this? In the Gospel of Luke, Luke describes the death of Jesus as an exodus. Remember that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration whenever Elijah and Moses show up and they talk to Jesus and he's transfigured and the disciples are blinded by the light and they're, and they're bowing down and they're afraid? Luke says in Luke 9, 30 and 31 that Elijah and Moses, Moses from the first exodus, talked to Jesus about his exodus. Now the ESV says his departure, but it's the, word, it's the Greek word for exodus. They talked to Jesus about the exodus he was about to accomplish for his people when he came. Jesus is the great deliverer, greater than Moses. He is the one who liberates his people from sin, who makes you pure, Christian, who keeps you holy, who watches over you as you journey through this world, who at last will bring you to your heavenly home to live and reign with him forever. And when I say heavenly, I don't mean the cream cheese. I mean heaven and earth will be one down here. And no longer heaven and earth, but heaven and earth will overlap and interlock and they will be the same place. And God's heaven will be here with you 
and with me. Jesus is the one who does this. He's the one who takes unholy people like us and makes us holy and then puts us back in an unholy world to live for him and keeps us holy. That might be a bigger miracle than creation itself. And we're to walk unto our heavenly inheritance, being holy for him, being ripened and refined for heaven. Now let's conclude with this. How does this apply for your walk with the Lord today? And with this we conclude. You, Christian, are on a pilgrim journey in this world. This world as it currently is, is not your home. But when God makes all things new, it will be. Sometimes we say, and I'll say it the southern way, this old world ain't my home, I'm just a passing through. Well, Heaven after you die, before the resurrection, that's not your home either. You're just a passing through there too. Passing through to come back here in a resurrected body, in a new heaven and new earth, to be with Jesus face to glorious face. And you're on a pilgrim journey to that day. This world as it currently is, is not your home. But when God makes it new, it will be. You are called, therefore, to flee the corruption of the world and to walk in holiness before the Lord. God has come to dwell with you and to dwell in you by his Holy Spirit and in his church. And so therefore, you and I must keep on advancing in our sanctification. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these great promises, let us bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have these promises, Christian, let us bring our holiness to completion in the fear of God. Knowing that Jesus is watching over you and your God surrounds you on every side as you journey on with him. Your heavenly inheritance, Christian, is still out in front of you. Jesus has purchased it. He has guaranteed it. It is yours by right through his blood, not through anything that you've done to deserve it. Only because he's so good and promised it. The inheritance is yours. So press on. Press on. God is making a great name for himself. Jesus is taking his throne. He is ruling and reigning for you, not against you. The church will be victorious. We win in the end. Your promised land, Christian, is just in sight. Press on. We have a kingdom to advance. Let's go. Pray with me. Father, your word is powerful, mighty, strong, and exhilarating. And too often, Lord, we forget that and we don't make the effort to set, a time, set aside the time to open it up and dig in and say, God, blow me apart today. Rewire me, rework me, reboot reform, revive, do whatever you need to do. Change me today, Lord, and blow me away with your word. Bear your holy arm to me today so I can see you mighty and strong for me in Christ, by your spirit, 
Never leave me or forsake me. The power of the gospel. Thrill me with your good news today. God, make us people who love your scriptures, who love your gospel so much that it truly makes us want to dance and leap for joy like we don't care who's watching. And help us to be so valiant and courageous knowing that we have a king who has never and can never fail, who is with us to the end, in whose service we march on. And give us the victory, Lord. Give us the victory as we share our faith with those we love. Give us the victory as we serve, as we lead, as we go, as we pray, as we participate in the worship of the church, as we do the one another's with each other. As we live this Christian life in the day in and day out routine, sometimes those daily routines, Lord, they don't feel noble. They don't feel big and, and important. They just feel like drudgery or monotony or just like it doesn't count for anything. But Lord, remind us, remind us that in your service, nothing we do for you goes unnoticed and none of it will go unacknowledged and unrewarded in the world to come. It's all for you. Our work for you is never in vain. Tying our shoes for you does not go unnoticed. Serving somebody one little cup of cold water in your name does not go unacknowledged. You see it all. You will reward us. We are your people and we have these great and powerful and precious promises. So enliven our daily lives with this nobility that what we do for you is massive and eternal and important. Maybe in the world's eyes it looks like nonsense and nothing and a waste. But with you, it will reap a harvest. There's a crown set out in front of us for being faithful right where we are in our own little bitty daily routines, in our little lives, in our little homes. All that we do for you matters because we're advancing your kingdom one inch at a time. We're taking the world back from the enemy one inch at a time as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to preach that gospel, the gospel of the king. And to live that kingdom and advance that kingdom, no matter what this world or this culture or this wicked generation thinks about it or says about it. The church cannot be canceled. We will prevail through Christ our Lord. And in that confidence, we boldly and with joy say, come Lord Jesus. Amen.